You're listening to Revenue Vitals with Chris Walker. Chris, welcome to the show. John, thanks for having me. Welcome back from vacation. Looking forward to diving in. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so let's get straight into it. So you talk a lot about these concepts of dark social and demand generation. So I want to quickly define those for our audience, but specifically, I'd like to talk about it in the overall context of B2B marketing. So not just SaaS, which I know you focus on a lot, obviously including that, but overall B2B marketing, I have this kind of personal thesis that these two concepts are really underappreciated, whether it's a big bank or financial services, go down the list, right? How do you think about dark social and demand gen to anchor us and then we'll go from there? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really matter on what B2B organization, med tech, pharma, financial services, SaaS and tech even. I think that these concepts are super underappreciated. I want to clarify, though, I think most people, at least in tech and SaaS, are very familiar with demand generation. When they think about demand generation, it's usually like a thought about how do we get more leads or how do we run performance marketing to get leads for our sales team to call or something like that. And I think it's just a very misunderstood and outdated definition. So I don't use the term demand generation anymore. I actually break it into three core things that you need to do to acquire net new revenue, which is you need to create demand, you need to capture demand, and you need to convert demand. And when you look at that as a holistic revenue team across those three spectrums, it becomes a lot more clear that you need a different measurement model for each part of the process, and that all of the go-to-market team should be impacting all of those three parts of the process. So historically, B2B companies have used an assembly line lead generation approach to go to market. Marketing gets leads or signals, then SDRs call those leads or find contact information based on those signals and cold call them and try to get meetings. And then sales tries to close whatever meetings that they get. And then the SDRs are comped on meetings, not revenue. The marketing team is measured on MQLs or SQLs, not revenue. And so everything upstream in the process is not aligned to what the sales team needs to hit their quotas and the business to hit their revenue targets. And I think that a lot of it stems from thinking about, quote unquote, demand generation, as opposed to looking at it as a holistic revenue team, breaking it into those three core categories. As we shift and think toward dark social, this is a concept that I started to see in 2016, 2017, when I was marketing to physicians and emergency room nurses and ICU intensivists and people like that, marketing medical technology. What would happen is that I was running the entire demand system, demand creation, demand capture, and then I was working with the sales team and field marketing to convert demand. I was looking at the whole thing for a specific segment. And what happened was the only dial that I turned for like 12 months was started to spend from $0 on Facebook and Instagram ads to twenty five dollars to $50,000 a month at the peak of when we were doing it. And what happened was we our inbound volume of qualified accounts asking for demos went up a ton and the revenue we generated through our website went up a ton. And absolutely nobody, all the UTMs inside of what HubSpot's attribution or whatever attribution tool you were using would just say, these came from organic search, they came from paid search, they came from direct traffic and no actual connection to Facebook ads. Then when I went out and talked to customers, what did they say? Oh, we keep seeing your content on Facebook all the time. I watch your video podcast on YouTube. When you send me those emails with those doctors doing those roundtables once a month, I watch them. And so all these things that we're doing in marketing that are highly effective in driving outcomes are not being measured properly inside of the attribution system, which makes it very difficult for a marketer to quote unquote, justify 
approve the ROI of their programs in order to maintain the existing budget or get more budget. And there's also, so we'll just go back on dark social a little bit, dark social through the scale and the maturity of the internet, it's created tons of different word of mouth channels and other forms of content sharing and content distribution that don't get tracked by attribution software and don't create account level intent data. Those include podcasts, content platforms like YouTube, social media platforms like a LinkedIn or a Facebook or an Instagram, private communities in Slack or Discord or LinkedIn groups or any place like that, private text messages, phone calls, general word of mouth. You have all of these different places where B2B buyers are gathering information to discover, research, evaluate, and purchase products that don't get tracked by attribution software and don't create intent data. So when the companies at HQ looking through their flawed measurement model to decide how they're going to spend their $8 million marketing budget next year, they just don't think any of this stuff's happening. And they think all that's driving their business is their SEO strategy and their email strategy and that what they do in events. It just creates this crazy divergence between whether if you listen to your what your customers say versus if you look at a dashboard and you have no context of your customers, you make entirely different strategy decisions. And I think that B2B marketers specifically need to be way more in tune with what their customers understand, want, where they learn, places like that. And product marketers do that. But when you look at the people that are responsible for doing quote unquote revenue marketing or demand gen or whatever you decide to call it, those people aren't talking to customers. They're not in the field. And we need to have more to be effective in creating, capturing, converting demand, creating content that your customers love that they attach to that moves them forward. You need to understand them deeply. Yeah. Maybe call me old fashioned, but I feel like I'm bringing back some foundational principles that are necessary for strategy. And I think we've been lost in technology and data and different things. Data matters. Don't get me wrong. Technology matters. Don't get me wrong. But the underlying foundational strategy for a marketer is to understand your customers so well that you don't that these other tools are validation or supplementary to what you do. The core strategy is clear. So that makes a lot of sense. And obviously, I think one of the missing pieces here, the reason there's this gap basically that you're exploiting in the marketplace with your company, I'm sure others are doing it as well, is because this stuff isn't measured, it doesn't get focused on enough. That makes sense. But I also wonder if there's other issues, and maybe this is a leading question, but at play, meaning to capture the full potential of this sort of dark social phenomenon, especially on platforms like LinkedIn and other social platforms, there's an element of personal brand, whether that's the founder or other executives or other folks internally at the company. Feel free to disagree with me here, but I feel like it's harder to do purely from the corporate brand only lens. Like we're X company and this is our strategy. Like you need more actual people and faces and personalities to make these platforms work. LinkedIn, maybe as a marquee example. Do you feel like there's some kind of psychological impediment here as well in terms of taking full advantage of these maybe harder to quantify, harder to measure opportunities? Between the personal brand and the company brand, the current state of LinkedIn will have you lean toward a personal brand, but this is entirely platform dependent. You need to make your decisions based on the platform. In 2017, we ran everything in our Facebook page through the company Facebook page, and it absolutely crushed through organic and paid together. So it really depends on the platform. So making that choice platform specific is really important. Now, when we think about B2B companies, organic, LinkedIn is the best opportunity in B2B in an organic channel right the second if you ex like the podcast and LinkedIn go together as one, in my view. But those two things are the best organic opportunities that you have today. 
I think the challenge with the company brand compared to a personal brand is if you go into a thousand person SaaS company, they have a social media manager that's trying to market their organic social to CFOs and VPs of finance. And the content becomes very company centric. You post a picture of your team at some offsite. You get 150 likes because you share it in your company Slack channel and you go and I do it every time I go into a company post that has a lot of likes. I look, every single person that liked it is an employee of the company. Yeah. You're just doing it to make yourself feel good. It's not impacting customers, not even reaching prospective customers. And so I think the difference between the personal brand and the company brand is that the personal brands that work are executive subject matter experts that really know what they're talking about and could be tactical practitioners that really know what they're talking about. But when we think about the company page, we're just PRing ourselves on LinkedIn with shit that doesn't matter. Yeah, it's promotion, right? I mean, it's mostly promotion. I think that's a lot of why company brands don't work. I ask subject matter experts to some of our customers, I pull up their LinkedIn page and I go through all their posts and I said, you subject matter expert, you're a CFO. If you posted to other CFOs, would you post any of the stuff that your company just posts on their page? And they'd go, no way, I would never post that. Yeah. And that's the difference. <laughs> yes. In that case, then it's less about the messenger and more about the message itself. It's just that the corporate brands tend to be paired up with the more sort of promotional. Be corporate. Yeah. We launched a new feature to our product and it's like, okay, great. But what does that actually do for me as the audience? Yeah, that makes sense. You talked a little bit about LinkedIn. I think that's the obvious one. At least it's obvious to me. What are some other, you briefly mentioned these, but what are the other sort of underappreciated platforms or channels in the B2B marketing world right now where you're going, man, gosh, I, people should really be paying more attention to insert name here. Yes. I'll make a comparison here. Let's talk about where the average B2B marketing budget is spent. And then I'll tell you where I think it could be spent differently. Sure. Average B2B marketing budget, six, and we're just talking programs here, not headcount. 60% of the budget's going to field events, trade show conferences, sponsorships. They're going to spend a small percentage, like 5% on analyst relations and PR and different stuff. They'll spend 30% on digital, which is basically lead gen, 30 to 40%. So they'll do a mix of content syndication, performance marketing on Google for ebook downloads, and LinkedIn lead gen for ebook downloads, 40% of the budget. And they got to throw away 5% for tech and other minor expenses. But basically, the only two expenses are lead gen digital 40% and field events 60%. And they don't take social media seriously. They don't have a podcast. Their webinars are like the outdated 2012 version of a webinar where you bring a deck and you present some information about it. And then it's like a back end sales pitch where I think the budget could be shifted to. I do think that companies should be spending about 40% on digital, but that 40% should be spent way differently. Out of the 40%, let's say 30% of that 30% goes on Google and the other 10% goes on LinkedIn or some mix of that. I think that 5 to 10% should be spent on Google paid search to capture branded terms, high intent terms, and any other tests that you deem necessary, but a dramatically lower expense. I would lower most paid search budgets by 50 to 75%. That's what we do when we and I consult with companies. I think companies really underappreciate the power of Facebook and Instagram ads. The algorithm continues to get better. Back in the day, I would have to go in there and I would pick the exact companies that we were going to target. And we had the exact job titles. Then Cambridge Analytica happened. Targeting got harder. Then iOS 14 happened and attribution got harder. Now, Meta, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was up to a month ago now, released a new algorithm. And everyone that I talk to that knows what they're talking about here does e-com marketing performance and stuff like that. They don't even set up targeting anymore. They literally put in the ad and let 
the algorithm find everyone who wants it. The Facebook pixel is installed on every website on the internet. Therefore, the Facebook knows every website that you visit. And if you're a SaaS company, and I'm a potential buyer of you, and I go to your competitor's website, Facebook's going to know about that and automatically serve you our ad because they know you're in market. And it's way, be- it's way better yeah. than the intent data that some companies have because some company visited a blog that said cybersecurity. So we should call IBM and cold call them and try and sell the, our cybersecurity SaaS. Yeah, another one for AI, right? Yeah, Facebook and Instagram is a algorithm is very powerful and it works in my experience. The challenge is that B2B companies don't create good content for Facebook and Instagram, organic or ads. Mm. They take their display ad from programmatic and then they push it into a story ad. It's not even formatted right. And they're trying to get someone to download an ebook. The objective's off. The creative sucks. They don't put any real budget to it. They don't put any real effort to it. LinkedIn, paid and organic, powerful combination. I think every company should be working those in tandem with a combination of the company page and some personal brands and thought leader ads with a mix of content. And then things that are not expensive from a program standpoint, but take a lot of time and effort and talent to work, hosting a podcast, hosting live events where you do free consulting for your customers once a week or biweekly, those types of activities, the events, the podcast, LinkedIn, get you inbound PR opportunities where people want to write articles about you, have you be a guest in their podcast, which is happening right now, invite you to speak at the big conferences in the industry. So instead of you paying some PR agency 15 grand to go out and try and get you on a couple podcasts when you have no brand or leverage, build the brand and then all that stuff comes to you for free. I do think there's a place for events. I think that companies overspend on events. I think that they spend too much on the booth expense. And I think some of the sponsorships are a total waste of money. But I do think that our events are valuable. I think we just need to adjust the strategy and the expenditures around the events. And there are big companies that do a thousand field marketing events per year. Whenever the sales rep wants to have a dinner with seven people, we got to get marketing involved and it's going to be 15 grand. Somehow it comes out of the marketing budget. And so I think that the event expenditures are bloated and companies need to start making decisions about what their event strategy is and then how they're going to determine ROI. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that was a really nice overall way to frame your thinking. Within that thinking, how are you approaching with your clients the thought leader concept? Is it founder, CEO, pick the best sort of out there executive and say, this is the person? Are you trying to spread that out? Take your average 2000 person company. Are you saying pick 12 people and those are our go-tos or is it more spread out? Like, how are you thinking about that when the medium requires a personal brand first and foremost versus a corporate brand? How do you think about that? Because I think that's tricky, right? Like that gets into, sure, it's easy to say, but like, okay, who are those 12 people? Do we pick 12 people? Do they raise their hand? Do you use their personal LinkedIn profile? Does it all come from corporate? Like, how do you navigate this weird world where corporate personal is all getting intermixed together? A couple thoughts on this. The purpose of an internal thought leader is to be entirely objective and help your customers across or your target persona and customers or accounts, however you want to look at it, across their entire job spectrum, not just the little piece that your technology plays in. Most companies can't get over that. So if you're, I don't even want to go through the example here. And then the second thing, B2B companies do not value the potential impact of this. And I want to talk through an example. So I think that if you're going to have a 
quote unquote, thought leadership strategy, and you expect it to start working, that when it does start working, you better get ready to pay up. If the strategy works, it's going to be highly valuable to the business. You're going to be very vulnerable if the person leaves, and they're going to have a ton of leverage over you if you're paying them a $200,000 salary to host your podcast that drives $10 million in revenue every year. So I think that the smartest setup is to have someone do this that has a significant financial stake in the long-term success of the company, just like your CFO and your CTO and your CMO and your head of sales and your CEO, all of your executive team. B2B companies don't value that. But if let's say that some big company, let's say Sixth Sense acquired my company tomorrow, and they did it because they want my podcast to be the thing that promotes their company, I'd want 2% of the company for that. My podcast reaches hundreds of thousands of people every month. My LinkedIn content reaches 5 million people a month. So that's the potential expense for a company because of the value overall that the media can provide if it works. 1% or less of companies or podcasts ever get anywhere close to that. Lack of commitment, lack of talent, lack of customer focus, lack of customer knowledge, lack of consistency, lack of subject matter expertise. There's a million reasons why it can fail, but if it works, if you have the right strategy, you have the right talent, you have the right setup, and it works, it's going to be highly valuable to your business. So I think that when I go and consult with companies, like a lot of the companies that I consult with at this point are like hundreds of million in ARR and already have a thought leadership strategy. It's just not working. Yeah. And so then re-architecting the framework of why we're creating the content, what the formats are going to be, how we're going to think about collaborations and external guests, how we're going to think about getting our own point of view in the podcast. Most companies' podcasts don't discuss anything about their point of view. It's just promoting the point of view of all their guests. Yeah. And so I think it's really valuable to have a majority of your podcast communicating your company's point of view in a way that it's not salesy and your customers get it and it's helpful to them. So I think there's a lot of nuances inside of a podcast. I recognize that most companies are not successful with it. But even if the podcast gets no listenership, but you do it once a week, you have five to seven videos that you can put on LinkedIn. And you could put that podcast on your website and transcribe it and SEO optimize it. And then you could send out the clip of it in an email or you could highlight what you said in a newsletter. And so the podcast, our podcast drives a ton of revenue. It's black and white. But I think that most companies should consider a, they should not be scrutinizing the ROI of the podcast. The podcast is a content creation mechanism that fuels all the other downstream content channels. Yep. That makes a ton of sense. Related question, how do you think about quality versus quantity in this kind of overall content strategy that you just mentioned? You know, on one side of it, you have the traditional, everyone works on one press release style article. We put out one article a month and we put it on all the social channels and it's really great and buttoned up. You know, on the other side of it, you have a bunch of people filming selfie videos on their phone, right? There are some fairly out there, fairly prominent people suggesting that large companies do that. I, that makes me a little nervous. But like at some point, there is a trade-off between the quality that you can hit versus just the sheer mass of content that you can put out into the world. How do you think about that trade-off? I don't believe that it's a trade-off. Interesting. The assumption implies that in order to get higher quality, that you need lower volume, which is not true. I produce higher quality both in the information and in the production quality video content than almost anyone on LinkedIn. And I post five times more than anyone does on LinkedIn. Yeah, It's just not the correct assumption that the quality of the information is really the important thing. You can figure out the quality of the production later in some formats, even things that I've cross-posted. I originally tested on TikTok using a green screen format 
face to camera. I took one to screenshot, put it behind me, started talking my best performing videos. And then I take them that they perform well on LinkedIn or on TikTok. And then I repost it on LinkedIn and TikTok format, some of my best performing LinkedIn videos. But big corporations aren't going to do that because they think that they need to be corporate and professional and that a chief information security officer wouldn't respect them if somebody was posting something like that. And it's totally out of whack. Yeah. So that's kind of my question. Yeah. And so here's the solution. If B2B companies want to do that, what they should do is they should adopt what I call a key opinion leader strategy. It's a more advanced, more grown up version of paying someone to post on LinkedIn. But this person has a large audience, but it's not just distribution. They also use your product in real life. They're developing new use cases. They're collecting data and research around it. And then they can do the face to camera post and they can post that on LinkedIn and TikTok. And it doesn't have to come from your company brand or a company employee. And you can experiment with those other types of things using external partners that are already good at it and have trust. So there's a million ways that B2B companies could do this, but they just choose not to. They like to say no. They like to think that, oh, if I mentioned Facebook and Instagram a minute ago, every executive I talked to, oh, I would have, I actually, we've never spent on Facebook. I would have never thought it was good. I know our customers don't use Facebook. No, they don't. They do not know that. If you asked your customers, you would see, maybe they don't use it when they're in the office, or maybe you made an assumption that they don't use it in the office because they wear a suit to work, but they use it. Facebook or Instagram are one of the properties that they own. And so People make assumptions about their opinions about what their customers do that are not rooted in data or actual customer insights. And it just reflects their biases to avoid new things that they're unfamiliar with. Uh, it's a whole thing in the B2B executive team because everyone's thinking like that. I think probably gone through the data of more than 50 B2B companies in the last, well, probably one a week data for the last year. Every company has the same attribution strategy. Every company has the same, the deck looks exactly the same. How their budget gets split is exactly the same. The strategy around the media is exactly the same. The issues that they're facing are exactly the same. They think that because they sell to cybersecurity or marketing or finance, that they're so much different. And it's an entirely homogenous space. And I think I'm challenging companies to think differently. Hundreds of them that have worked with us are starting to do it. At some point you have to question, is what I'm doing actually the best practice today? Or was it the best practice in 2016? And nobody's come up with a better best practice yet. And so I just feel like there's so much more that marketing and revenue teams could do to be more customer centric, drive better results, drive better ROI by challenging existing norms. And I'm encouraging people to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That really tracks with my experience. So Chris, maybe let's Go to our rapid fire round here. Love it. Cool. All right. Sometimes I'm long winded, but I'll try and be rapid here. <laughs> no, I've actually found that the best answers to these aren't that rapid, but okay, uh, we'll see how it goes. So yeah, no pressure. Okay. So in a business context, what do you believe deeply that most people disagree with you on? By the way, this is a Peter Thiel question. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that people like quote unquote disagree with me on. Basically, where are you the biggest contrarian? but you're firm in that belief. I think that I get the most pushback on my ideas around the value and effectiveness of attribution as the primary measurement model in uh, attribution software, digital touchpoint-based attribution, better framed as the primary measurement model in B2B companies. And they don't collect customer insights. They don't collect self-reported attribution data. They don't use win-loss analysis to feed into their go-to-market strategy. They don't do market research surveys. And I think that it leads to a lot of really poor, flawed, limited decision-making 
I'm not saying that companies shouldn't use it for the millionth time people put words in my mouth, like I'm saying that you shouldn't use attribution software. That's not what I'm saying. I'm highlighting the fact that the tools have major flaws and the way that companies use them are not working. And I see it over and over at hundreds of companies. And I hear about it from the companies that want to work with me and the people that are in my community. And it's just obvious. And so I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying you need to think differently about how you use it. Yeah, that makes sense. Five years from now, what emerging platform will business leaders regret not paying more attention to today? It could be a social platform, it could be technology. People are going to look back in five years and say that I really fucked up by not posting on LinkedIn every day starting in 2019 or 18. Yeah. Does that still hold true today or tomorrow? If you say, I've never done anything, I'm going to start tomorrow. Does that still hold true? It's still the most effective place to reach the common B2B decision maker or influencer of a decision with content today. And so I think it still holds true. People think that B2B marketing and go-to-market moves a lot faster than it actually does. I don't think that things change dramatically over time. I think that companies add more technology to do the same dumb shit more efficiently. But there's not really big major step changes. Account-based marketing was not a major step change. We Instead of calling MQLs, we're calling contacts that we get from MQAs. It's the same thing. There are not many big steps or progressions in B2B marketing that have happened over the past five or 10 years. And I'm trying to push some paradigm shifts about how we think about and measure the effectiveness of our holistic go-to-market strategy, which would then force execution to be different than the way it is today. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, two-parter. What are the most overrated and underrated trends in marketing today? I feel like you've tackled some of this, but anything else that stands up? So overrated, and I'm not saying that these tools or things are not useful, but I am saying I think that they're overrated. I think that for the most part, account-based, and this isn't my opinion, this is just what I hear from CMOs and other people that actually use the tools day in and day out. Account-based marketing platforms seem to be overrated. I hear over and over from CMOs, if you ripped out this tool tomorrow, I'd be fine. <laughs> Our SDRs on adopting it. We use it to run LinkedIn ads and do some account analytics. It's just, I would be fine without it. I think there's a lot of power in the tool when used properly, but I don't think that the vendors that sell those tools have set up companies to be successful holistically in their go-to-market with the tool. It's just centered around using the tool. I think that AI is going to be super powerful, but at the moment for... B2B marketing and sales, I think is uh, very overrated. So I think that it will be powerful in the future. I get that there are use cases where it makes sense, but like having an AI agent do outreach to sell your $50,000 a year sales tool is going to just ruin your reputation in the market. Creating blogs based on asking a question to AI or prompting AI to write you a blog, total waste of time. The way you went on content is differentiated, unique opinions, not commodity information underrated. I think that self-reported attribution and other forms of primary market research are incredibly underrated across all parts of a B2B organization. I don't see many companies do market research surveys, rarely win-loss analysis. Most companies don't use self-reported attribution. It's like, how can we devise a unique, differentiated winning strategy without getting all these inputs from our customers? We do it to build our product, we do focus groups and all this stuff in product development. Why don't we bring that into our go-to-market strategy? So I think there's really something there that's underrated. I'm going to go back to overrated. 
RevOps as a concept is incredibly strong. I think that the delivery of that concept in real life today is overrated. And oftentimes a rebranding of sales ops. I don't think that those people will come up from one of those functions, sales ops, marketing ops, or customer success ops. I think those people very really struggle to look at the go-to-market holistically, which is the whole point of the function. And I think it's primarily an operational function, like let's do these tasks, let's implement this tech, not a strategic scientific function that says this is how we're going to determine how budget gets allocated. This is how we're going to forecast and plan next year. This is how we're going to change our attribution strategy to force the right things. This is how we're going to align our KPIs across the go-to-market team. I'm not seeing any of that stuff done by the RevOps department, at least broadly right now. And I think that opportunity to be the glue in the go-to-market for RevOps is incredibly high. I think that I'm going to start spending a lot of time there to pave the way on how those things should work to get that function to be a lot more strategic. You still need the tactical, but we need that function to step up and be more strategic. Hmm. Okay, that's great. Chris, this has been awesome. Before we go, how do people find out more about you, get in touch with you, find out more about uh, your company? Feel free to check out my podcast, uh, B2B Revenue Vitals on Apple, Spotify, or any other podcast. You can follow me on LinkedIn or any other social media platform. My handle is uh, chriswalker171. Okay, that's great. Chris, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me.